Open your Bibles, if you have them, to uh, John 14. We're going to continue our study through the Gospel of John by going from John 14, verse 15 to 31. And if you don't have a Bible, the, the um, verses will be up here. Let's read his word. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? Jesus answered them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Not as the uh, <clears throat> peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. And I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. God, we thank you for your Son, our Savior. And we thank you for the Spirit that opens our heart that we can know Him and then know you. We pray that you bless this message today. These words be your words. And that it would cause us to love you more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Comfort. The world seeks comfort. We are bombarded on, the, on TV with advertisements about comfort. From the shoes we wear, the extra wide stretchers, to the special underwear you get from Hanes. Whatever, we, we seek comfort. We seek emotional comfort. We are advertised that we need home security so that we can make sure that we're going to be safe. So we're seeking comfort. We're seeking safety. We're seeking peace all the time. We seek emotional comfort. We even have comfort food. We seek comfort and ministry opportunities. If it's not comfortable, I'm not going to teach with the children. We will do anything to avoid discomfort. Even to the point of some people committing suicide. 
We don't want stress. We want to avoid anxiety. I have to say, as a, as a neurologist, yes, I'm not a preacher. As a neurologist, a lot of things I deal with come because people do not have this comfort. The stress and this anxiety are causing significant problems in their life. We're going to see that our only comfort comes from knowing Jesus. It doesn't come from friends and family and our spouse, our bank account, our possessions, our personal reputation. It comes from knowing the Lord. The only real source of comfort and peace. Look at the setting of this passage we just read in, in John 14. We, we've talked about this is the upper room discourse. Uh, Jesus is talking to the 12 and, and Judas leaves and he leaves the 11 there. The 11 believers, the unbelievers left. Now he has a believer and Jesus is communicating to them. He's communicating them in the, the last hours of his life because he's going to leave here and within, within a day, he's going to die. And he's communicating with his 11 believers. That's the setting of this passage. He knows that he's going to be betrayed by Judas. He knows that he's going to have, he's going to be tortured. He's going to have a terrible death on the cross. And that's just hours away. The disciples, the eleven, should be comforting Jesus. But what does Jesus do in these last hours? He comforts them. As Bruce talked last week, he promised them that in eternity they would have a room with him, that Jesus would spend eternity with them. They would be in his presence. He promised them that he was the way, he was the truth, and he was the life. And the only way to know God is through him, and he is God himself, and he's coming back. He goes on talking in this passage about a comforter, a helper. And let's look at John 15. It says, 15 through 17 and verse 26, it says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. In verse 26, it says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all I have said to you. By the way, just as an, as an aside, this is the first time where Jesus tells his disciples to love him. Throughout the Gospel of John so far, he's been telling his disciples to love one another. That God loves them. This is the first time where Jesus says, love me. And that's just an aside. I want to spend a little time talking about the Holy Spirit here because this passage introduces Jesus' specific, special teaching about the Holy Spirit. And I want to spend a little time doing this because there's significant confusion in this day about the Holy Spirit. We have some people who overemphasize the Spirit. Everything's the Spirit. We have people who don't even talk about the Holy Spirit. So we have the extremes going on. And we need to think rightly about the Holy Spirit, part of the Trinity. 
the word for Holy Spirit is, in the Greek, is, um, gosh, just, <laughs> is parakletos, or paraclete. And that can represent helper, comforter, advocate, counselor, defender. F.F. Bruce in his commentary on the Gospel of John says, it really stands for one who is called alongside as a helper, a defender, a friend in court. That's what paraclete means. But it says there will be another paraclete. Who was the first paraclete? Well, it was Jesus. Jesus filled that role. And He still fills that role. So we have two paracletes. In, John, in 1 John 2.1 it says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a paraclete with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So we have Jesus the paraclete for the disciples who is with them. He spent time with them. He was their guard. He was their stand beside. He was their comforter. And now he's going away to fulfill that role by the side of the Father. But he sends his spirit to take that place. The another the other, another paraclete, we have to think of Christ's work. Christ's proper work was to appease the wrath of the Father by anointing, by atoning for the sins of the world. He had another role. He redeemed us from death. And the third role of Jesus was to procure righteousness and life for us. But the role of the Spirit is to, take, is to make us partakers of Christ Himself and His blessings. Jesus is teaching on on the Holy Spirit becomes very specific here. So up until this point in the Gospel of John, we have mention of the Holy Spirit. The first mention was when the Spirit descended like a dove on Jesus at His baptism. The second message would be He's talking to Nicodemus in John 3 and He tells Nicodemus that He must be born of the Spirit. The, the fourth time we hear the Spirit is when John, when Jesus is talking to the lady at the well, the Samaritan, and the woman at the well says, I know that we worship in spirit. And then at Capernaum, he um, talks about just he just fed the 5,000 and he talks about him being the bread of life and he says that the spirit is the one who gives life. And lastly, before this specific teaching on the spirit, he, he's at the feast of the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, and he says, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow living water. And in John 7, 39, he spells out what that means. He says, now he said this about the Spirit, whom, the, whom those who believed in him were to receive. And for as yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not been glorified. So now that Jesus is approaching his glorification, his death, and then the glorification of his resurrection, that's when the Spirit will be given. So we have this specific teaching in John 14 about about Jesus being the helper, the comforter. We also have that He is the interpreter. He's the Spirit of truth. And He'll bring to remembrance all that He has said to us. In the weeks to come, we're going to hear about the Spirit being a witness to Jesus and about being the, the prosecutor is going to convict the world of sin. And we're going to hear about He's the revealer of Jesus. In, in 325 A.D., the Nicene Creed was developed. The Nicene Creed 
one of the specific reasons for that was the church got together and said, listen, we need to firm up what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit. And it really declares the deity, the deity that the Holy Spirit is part of the Godhead with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all being three persons of one essence. And also they, they decided, kind of deciding what the work of the Holy Spirit is and what the work of the Father and what the work of the Son is together, trying to put together how this Trinity works. And this is a statement from Michael Horton. Michael Horton wrote this book called Rediscovering the Holy Spirit. And if you have, if you have an interest in this, and you should, you should read this book. It says, everything that God does is done by the Father in the Son, through the Spirit. And that kind of gives you an idea how things work. We spend a lot of time looking for specific works or unique works of the Holy Spirit when we should spend that time about how the works of God, how the Spirit works uniquely in that way. Think of creation. So if you go to the Sunday school class back here and ask them, who created the world? What's the answer? God did. Well, was it God the Father? Was it God the Son? Or God the Holy Spirit? Well, they should answer yes. Because it's all of them. They're all involved. All doing that work together. There's not a work that's, that's unique to one of them. They all work together in a special fashion to do the work of God. We need to know that the Holy Spirit has all the essential attributes of the Father. You know, His... his omniscience, his omnipresence, his love, his goodness, his character is all the same. So how is the Holy Spirit unique? Well, we know from the Bible that God the Father is unbegotten. The Son is begotten. The Holy Spirit proceeds. Now, if you ask me what that means, I have no idea. We look at Genesis and we know begotten means. Begotten means like, okay, this guy had this kid, that's begotten. Well, the Holy Spirit wasn't, the Son wasn't begotten. It wasn't a physical birth. There never was a time, never, there was any, there never was a God who was God the Father alone. God the Father always was God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit. Never an individual Never one person. The person of the Godhead is always Trinity. I'd like to read a quote from Michael Horton's book. It's a relatively long quote, so put up with me. It says, Scripture does underscore the Spirit's role in regenerating us, of uniting us to Christ and in Him to the Father, of indwelling us and interceding within our hearts, of stirring us to love and fellowship with the Father and the Son as well as with each other. Since our first contact with the triune God is with the Holy Spirit who raises us from spiritual death and indwells us, we can wrongly conclude that the Spirit is the approachable person of the Trinity. Instead, we should see this work of the Spirit as initiated by the Father and purchased and mediated by the Son. Through the Spirit's operation, all three persons come near to us and bring us into their fellowship. Christ is indeed the one who leads us to the Father, but it is only by the Spirit that this is possible. If you remember the, the Old Testament 
in Ezekiel, it says we are going to have a circumcision of a heart. The Spirit is going to change your heart of stone into a heart of flesh so we can receive this message. But, re, but an example of this would be, this is from J.I. Packer, a theologian. He said, it's like a spotlight. And so you go to the Washington Monument. You go to Washington, D.C. My wife grew up near Washington, D.C., so we visit Washington, D.C. quite often. And you go there at night, and you go like to the Lincoln Memorial, and it, this beautiful monument is lit up by a spotlight. And what do you focus on? The spotlight? No, you focus on the monument. But think of the Spirit as that spotlight. That spotlight has a critical role of illuminating the person of Christ. And that's who we worship. That's who saves us. But it's the work of the Spirit to change our hearts, to illuminate the person of Christ. We pray to the Father in the Son by the power, the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. There's a couple of quotes here from uh, theologians. B.B. Warfield, who was the last conservative um, executor of um, Princeton Theological Seminary in, in uh, 1921, he said, the Holy Spirit is the executor of the Godhead, not only in creation and the upholding of the worlds and in the inspiration of the prophets and apostles, but also in regenerating and sanctifying the soul. Abraham Kuyper, who was um, from the Netherlands, he was actually a, a theologian, and he also became the prime minister of the Netherlands back in the uh, early 1900s, said, we begin with the general distinction, distinction that every work affected by the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost is in common. The power to bring forth proceeds from the Father. The power to arrange from the Son. And the power to perfect from the Spirit. And lastly, John Owen, a theologian and um, Puritan re reformer in, New in England in the 1600s said, in every, work, in every great work of God, the concluding, completing, perfecting acts are ascribed to the Holy Ghost. Truly, this is a Trinitarian religion we have. We have the Father, we have the Son, and we have the Spirit. And this is a source of comfort for us because this Spirit is now ours. If we believe in Christ, He indwells us. And that's 100%. And that happens at conversion. And it is the source of our comfort. But John, the writer of the gospel, goes on telling us about what Jesus says. And he says, there's other sources of comfort. And that's the love of the Father and love of the Son. Look at verse 15. It says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In verse 18 through 24, it says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. And that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to them, Lord, how is it you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And the Father who loves me, loves him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the words that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. We frequently, 
In fact, many for a long time have read this backwards. I read it. To love God, so I have to generate that love in, by being obedient. So I have to obey the commandments. And if I obey the commandments, then God will love me. And then Jesus will love me. And it doesn't say that. It says, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. We get that wrong. Our obedience and our obeying the commandments is because we love Him. And we can only do that because of the indwelling Spirit giving us the power to obey Him. So we, we frequently get that around. We become pietistic or legalistic. I have to do these things. And if I do these things, God will love me and I will be okay. And if I don't do these things, then that's not going to happen. Well, that's wrong. It doesn't say that. It says, if you love me, this will prove true by what you do. In um, 1 John 4.19, it says, We love because God loved us. Let's not, remember, let's not get that screwed up. Let's not turn that around. We love because God loved us. In Romans 8, 15 to 17, Paul is speaking to the Christians in Rome, and he says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified with him. Bring us full tilt around to that Trinitarian love that God has for us. The Spirit indwells us. And because the Spirit indwells us, we did not receive a spirit of slavery, but we have received that spirit of adoption as sons. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Should that give you comfort? The answer is absolutely. In 1 John 3, 1 through 3, it says, See what kind, the, what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is because it didn't know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we, will, we know that when we, He appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes purifies himself as he is pure. So, we are God's children and we are going to be like him. And with this hope, it causes us to have a changed life. Not the other way around. It's because of this that we have a changed life. This idea of being part of God's family is, I, I remember being in college, being in college and you have all the studies and all the obligations, all the things you're doing, and then when break comes, you get to go home. And you go home and it's comfortable. There's peace, at least for five minutes. But that's, that's what I think about, is sitting at my mom and dad's house and having that comfort.
What does it mean to do the works of God? In John 6, 28-30 it says, Then he said to them, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Believing in Jesus. Okay, so, we have a room forever with the Father, with God, with Jesus, who will be our Savior forever. We have the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who is our paraclete. We have the love of the Father and the love of the Son, all giving us comfort. And, and next he talks about the peace. Look at verse 27. It says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. What? What a source of comfort to have the peace of Christ. This is what he gives us. And he says it's not like the world can give. I was looking at this and I said, well, how, how can I have this peace? Everybody in this room should be seeking this. How can we have this peace? And we know that the number one way is to believe in Jesus, to be indwelt by his spirit. But he gives us some practical things. If you look at Colossians 3, 15 through 17, it says, and let the peace of Christ dwell in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. What well, it says there, in one body. So there's fellowship. Having Christian fellowship is a source of that peace. Being thankful, giving thanks to God for everything is a source of that peace. And worship, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Fellowship, thankfulness, worship are sources for that peace that we can have in Christ. One of the famous passages about peace is in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Whatever, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So our prayer, prayer and supplication is a source of peace. What we think about is a source of peace. But all this can be done only as a result of that indwelling spirit. In our position in Christ, we never for should forget. In Romans 5, 1 through 5, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Again, all the way around, God's love through the Father, through the Son, back to the Holy Spirit. Our identity in Christ is our source for comfort and peace. And lastly on the outline is 
the last source of our peace in this passage is victory. And we're going to hear more about that in the weeks to come. So I just want to touch on it. In verse 30 of the 31, it says, I will, no, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, and so the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go. In John 16, which we'll hear about in the next few weeks, it says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the, in the world, you have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Only true peace and comfort that we can have is from Jesus. He lived the perfect life obtaining the righteousness that we don't have and giving it to us. He died in our place as a sacrifice for us. He rose from the grave, conquering death, and now is with the Father as our advocate. And he's coming again to restore creation. We tend to put our comfort, our peace, our trust in many different things. As I mentioned, we tend to put our hope, our trust in our relationships, maybe our family, maybe our children, maybe our reputation, our profession, our bank account. All those things are not worthy. Only Jesus is worthy. When we put anything like that instead of Jesus, we become idol worshipers. And our heart, our hearts as humans are idol factories, as John Calvin said. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can only thank you that you have provided peace for us through your Son, through your Spirit. God, I pray that everyone here would know that they can have that peace by walking with you. And there's no other worthy source of that peace, that comfort, that joy we can have in you. And all we can, uh, all we can do is thank you for that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.